Hello, Adrian, back with you here on China Manufacturing Decoded, the podcast from Sophist. I'm hosting today. Andrew is also back with me, and I welcome him again because he's going to be taking us through the topic of today. Are you selecting electronic components the right way? And so you might be thinking, okay, we do use electronic components for our products. But what is the right way? Are we making mistakes or are there ways that we can do this to get better success for things to be running more smoothly, to have better quality products? So Andrew's going to explain all of that. Andrew, welcome. Hey, Adrian. Good to be here. How are you doing? Good. I'm good. How are you? Not bad. Not bad. I think this is going to be a very interesting discussion. I hope our listeners benefit from it. Yeah, well, again, I think this is the sort of topic it takes an engineer to explain this and to uh, help people to understand what the right way is. So in your opinion, as a very experienced engineer, this is what we're going to be sort of diving into. And so to begin, the selection of electronic components, right? Can you explain what this process is and where this will be happening in the sort of new product development and manufacturing process, please? Sure. Uh, let's just say that uh, uh, pretty much all design engineers for electronic products have to go through this process. So any kind of product that is electronic and that you are trying to design electronic product, you must go through component selection process. And it is really, I would say there, there there's a lot more involved than people actually think. And uh, I remember when I was a young student, engineering student, I had to go to Radio Shack those days, one of those electronic shops, which is closed nowadays. But, you know, you had to pick some parts from there. And, and And at that time, I never, ever thought about all of these requirements that we are going to discuss here. I pretty much picked a part. I didn't care how much it cost. I didn't care about its quality. I just basically, hey, is it working? Is it going to, you know, I'm going to be able to finish this project in in time for my class. And that was it, you know. And I wonder how many design engineers think that way, you know, in in a serious real product environment when you are actually trying to build a very serious electronic product, uh, which you have to make sure that the components and parts that you're choosing and selecting for this product meet certain criteria. And that's what we're going to discuss. And and honestly, it's it's a lot, a lot that you have to do. And each one of these could be taken in anywhere from a couple of hours to a couple of days or a couple of weeks in some cases to be able to make a determination, yes or no, we're going to use this part or not. And and so we're going to be talking about, for example, uh, 17 or 18 type of scenarios or requirements. Mm, wow. Okay. So that's, that's pretty detailed. And these are, you know, sort of 17 or 18 steps, maybe we can call them, that are going to help you to be using the right electronic components and i suppose along the way you'll explain what we mean by the right because if you're not selecting appropriate components that's going to give you a bunch of problems right 
Yeah, there, as you said, there are kind of like steps, but in some cases you can basically do, do these tasks uh, in parallel. Yeah. Uh, but yes, obviously yeah. there are steps. I think the first step is defining the requirements. Uh, and and that is really, really important because you have to understand your project, your product, uh, your use case environment, and what does this product supposed to do, what environment it's going to be uh, used in, uh, what kind of reliability requirements you have. And so you need to think about all of those things and consider all these factors uh, as basically your requirements for designing and requirements for each one of these parts that you purchase. Mm. Where would we start doing that? I mean, you've got, you're sort of, um, that's going to be in the very early part when you're looking at the feasibility and things like that. Yeah, I think that the, the first step really in that uh, uh, define a requirement is to look look into your core components or what we say sometimes uh, critical quality components or your major and expensive components or long lead item components or sole source components. You know, these are the kind of things that you have to make a decision and you want to start from those first. Because mm. if you got, let's say you got only one type of chip you can use, you can't use any other kind. So then you really have to start from there and your design and everything has to be around that type of chip because you can't use any other, right? So mm-hmm. it makes sense. And then, of course, from there, you need to start thinking about analyzing the environment. This will be more like number three. Um, this is where you want to know, okay, my product is going to be, for example, in what sort of environment is it going to be humid humid environment is going to be hot environment cold environment and you have to make sure all these components that you're going to purchase can actually meet for example temperature requirement or humidity requirement and so on next step is Mm. identify key parameters for each component this is really critical this is where you need to uh, think about okay what kind of voltages and currents I need, frequency range, tolerances. For example, simple example, you know, you could you could choose a resistor. Well, if you could choose a tight tolerance resistor um, where you really need any kind of resistor, it doesn't have to be tight tolerance, then the cost is going to be huge because tight tolerance... Mm. Resistors are actually screened out uh, to meet that requirement. It's really difficult to to make a tight tolerance. So in that case, you're not doing the right thing. So if you don't need a tight tolerance resistor, so why would you want to choose that, right? So you really need to kind of think about it and say, you know, I, I don't need tight tolerance. So let's just go with, you know, any old resistor. And, and that will be your parameter that you identified. Okay, so at this point, so um, the the steps that we've sort of that you've outlined so far, or the tasks that you've outlined so far, we're sort of more laying the ground for defining the sorts of components that we actually need, right? So, you know, we, we've defined our requirements. We know which are the core components of of the product 
we know where they're supposed to be used. Uh, I was going to make a point about that. So, you know, if you're sitting in an office in Chicago and and it's uh, mild and even cold for much of the year, is is the product going to work in New Mexico, you know, uh, based on the, the components that you're selecting? So I think environmental, that's going to be super important. And of course, the key parameters as well. So you've got all of this information together. But so far, you haven't actually done any sourcing, as it were, right? Correct, correct. And you made a good point on that because, and that's exactly why uh, pretty much any good design engineer in their lab, they have kind of a small temperature and humidity oven. And in yeah. this oven, basically, they can put small little PCBs, depending on what kind of products they're, they're making. If they're small products, so they have a small, you know, chamber in there and they'll just fire mm-hmm. it up and, and they will, um, the cool thing about this oven is that, uh, you know, it, it reaches temperatures they want very quickly and uh, they can have uh, the PCB and the component inside the oven, but actually the wires will come out and they can actually connect it to network analyzers or voltmeter and they can actually measure the data outside the chamber. And And like you said, this is extremely important because if, mostly the product is going to be in the cool it has to be used in the cold environment then you must make sure that that component is not only can reach those temperatures and still be functioning but perhaps maybe have a little bit of margin of reliability in excess of whatever is required Mm -hmm. yep yeah, and uh, margin of reliability, that's something that we've discussed quite re- recently. So that makes a lot of sense. Cool. Okay. Yeah, so moving on to number five. So now that you have actually defined your requirement for the component and you have decided, okay, it has to meet this kind of temperature and humidity requirements in terms of environment, now you're starting to think, okay, and my parameters are ready. Let me just go and start searching and looking for these components. There are so many ways to do that. In the old days, you had databases that you actually had to buy. Uh, I think I remember one of them was called IHS database, component database, that you buy loads and loads of CD-ROMs. And then you put those in a very, like a mainframe computer and yeah, actually like a desktop computer, really, not a mainframe. And then... uh, you would spend hours and hours looking for the part numbers, looking for the type of part you want, and then finally finding, printing the data sheet, going through your uh, parameters and requirements. And then once it met those requirements, and not all the time met, by the way, but once it met, then you put that away and you say, okay, this is one option. Let's move on and look at, Another option, maybe one with a little bit of higher voltage, maybe one a little bit of uh, different packages. And and, and so one maybe not so uh, expensive, more like a standard part. So you you could do all kinds of things on this. But then after that happened, the the internet came about. And then there were a lot of uh, companies online, such as uh, Digikey, which I think just about every electronic design engineer knows DigiKey mm-hmm. online. And this is a really nice online uh, distributor website. 
I wouldn't necessarily buy everything from them, but I would buy small amount, kind of more like Alibaba or some other uh, website those days, you know, uh, where you could just jump in and buy any kind of electronic component in small number of volumes, like 10, 20 pieces and so on. And this way you could at least try out, right, um, your, your design and see if it's in the ball, ballpark. So let's say you used IHS or another database or a DigiKey and you found out, okay, this is the part I want. Then you would basically download the data sheet, for, exa for example, from DigiKey and maybe right there and there you would order a few pieces. These parts will come in and then you would try it out in your circuit board. And if they met the requirements, then you start looking for something more serious. So that would be, that was the way uh, used to be done. And now, of course, they have even better websites where uh, you can go to the supplier of that actual part. In those days, I don't think too many companies had any websites, but now every company has a website. So you can actually go directly to the component supplier database. You can search by the type of design you want, the voltages and, and the currents and even part numbers. And then you can find and, and basically uh, target what component you need, download data sheets and you know all sorts of documentation that you need. And then um, maybe even get some samples. And sometimes even get free samples. You know, if you have a really uh, amazing project and and that supplier wants to be part of you, they will send mm. distribute. Yeah, they want they will send you a distributor, a salesperson, including an application engineer. So that means that not only the salesperson will give you all the information you need in terms of the volumes that you need in terms of price, uh, in a real time manner. You know, maybe they'll take you out to lunch, and uh, but but also application engineer will actually help you with the, with designing that part into your circuit board. You know, even though most design engineers are very good at what they're doing, but each part slightly is different, right? And application engineers uh, facilitate this process. They're amazing. They, they know everything you want to know about their component. So they will say, well, what do you want to do? You say, well, I want this thing to, you know, act like a switch, turn on and off. They would say, oh, that's easy. Just put this over here, add a cap and the resistor, whatever. And here it is. They would actually give you the circuitry. And all you have to do is actually implement that circuit in your design. And so that sort of uh, process and simplifying really saves a lot of time for the design engineer. So moving on from, you know, searching and finding the component, now you need to definitely pay attention to specification and data sheet and comparing parts, you know, from one vendor to another. So for example, maybe uh, there are two different suppliers, right? And uh, this would be more like number six. So you need to look at the suppliers and say, well, this supplier is the main manufacturer, this other one, and it's been, it has been in business for a long time. But the second one is a small supplier and they just started, or maybe even a distributor, not, not a real supplier and a manufacturer. So you want to be aware of that because you want to mm -hmm. big project and you are going to be needing like 
let's say 100,000 or more parts, you really don't want to deal with distributors most of the time. You want to deal yes. direct with the manufacturers. And in that case, yeah, and in that case, you definitely want to think about lead times. Uh, you want to think about availability of those parts. But then you also want to make sure that you have a second source, you know, a second supplier, so that in case uh, negotiations doesn't go well with this supplier, uh, then maybe you can move on with the second supplier, even though the cost might be different or availability might be slightly different, you know, uh, or or um, in terms of uh, volumes might be sp- slightly different. But then at least, you know, you don't go out of business, uh, uh, you know, these, trying to design this product. Number seven will be check for obsolescence. This is really critical. I, I don't know how many times design engineers uh, were all excited. Hey, I found my part. They designed it in. And, and then the supplier, uh, this uh, the purchasing manager comes and gives him a bad news. Hey, yeah, this part doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> it's obsolete. And this is such a bad news for design engineers. So most of the time, you know, seasoned design engineers are quite familiar with this. This is like one of the important things in the back of their mind. But young engineers may not realize this and get it get themselves in trouble. And then, of course, cost is the most important thing. Uh, you definitely want to understand this cost issue when it comes to components. So as I said, you know, I, I think that cost is, is so important. A lot of times you might think that, you know, you just buy one part and it will be the same if you buy 10,000 parts. If you're a young engineer, you might actually think this because, you know, purchasing is not your your forte. But but in reality, that's not how it works. The more parts you buy, the cheaper the part per unit will be. So for example, maybe you just buy one, you know, chip, um, something like for mobile phone, uh, it will be like $10 a piece. But if you buy 10,000 of them, maybe it'll drop down to even eight or $7 a piece. And if you buy mm-hmm. a million parts, it could considerably come down. And so this is extremely important because you need to understand this cost uh, structure so that you can pick the right supplier because if you pick a supplier that is just everyone knows that their prices are high, you're going to run into some kind of problem when you are trying to build a product that is supposed to be cost cost effective. So cost is one of the most important uh, topics when, when choosing a component. In fact, here's one, one important thing. All these components come together in, in a database. They call it BOM bill of materials um, and, and there are different ways of having a bomb sometimes they have it in some kind of a uh, enterprise database and sometimes they have it on excel you know depending on how many parts you have and this bomb they create a bomb cost that means all the uh, materials that you need like let's say you need 200 parts all 200 parts are costed that means they put in uh, you know uh how much each costs, 
Sometimes we call it MOQ, uh, like 1,000 for one piece, 1,000 piece. Um, and this is like uh, getting caught for 1,000 piece. MOQ 1,000 means 1,000 piece. MOQ uh, 1 million means 1 million piece. And then this these uh, costs uh, go, you know, basically accumulated and you kind of figure out, uh, it, it, you know, if you had to build 1 million of these PCPs, how much um, one one piece would cost you? Uh, obviously, you don't want these these pieces to be uh, huge costs because then it'll cut into profit, and uh, you, you know you, you'll go out of business very quickly. So it, it's very important mm. to to manage the the cost when it comes to parts. Because imagine uh, one part is like one dollar expensive. And you get million products. That's like one million dollar more expensive. Yeah, well, expensive. absolutely. That's a huge amount. The, yeah. the, the small figure. It, it's still important to be as uh, conscious of that as a as a larger one. Right, right. And so, next topic is even more exp- more important, and that's number nine: reliability and quality. So, a lot of times, what happens is that. Um, um, the company definitely has a reliability and quality target. You know, they they know exactly what they're building and they have told everybody that we want this product to to be able to, you know, like a car, we want this product to be lasting at least uh, 20 years, right? Um, but what if it was not a car and it was like a television, for example, a little bit, uh, mm. you know, not so much uh, as important as a car or an airplane. So you're building a television, so you want it to be lasting for at least two to three years, right? Maybe four. Um, the the problem is sometimes this information doesn't really get understood by at least junior engineers in the design team. They might think that, well, okay, I'm just uh, I just found this part, my circuit works. I'm done. What they don't understand Ooh. is that what they just used is a part that won't even last maybe two years, you know, uh, because they just can't handle a certain amount of temperature. And once the temperature fluctuates so many times, that part will actually die. Or maybe that part can handle certain uh, surges of electricity like lightning or whatever and all of a sudden it'll burn very quickly so if 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 this is the situation you're looking at all kinds of reliability and quality issues what you're supposed to do in return is that you want to make sure that your team your design team clearly understand that this particular part must meet this sort of quality this sort of reliability requirements for example if i drop it it has to meet one meter minimum drop test. It should not break if I drop it from one meter height. Or if I increase the voltage by 0.1 volts or whatever, or one volt, it should still work. It should have certain tolerance for voltage and current. And what about temperature? Like if if I'm increasing temperature up, my opera- operating temperature, let's say it's 50 degrees C on the high side, well, what if it's 55? Well, we don't want that product just 
burn right away or go, you know, go to hell after uh, just five degree increase in the temperature. So you want to make sure you choose a part that can handle maybe five to 10 degrees above your operating uh, temperature requirements. So, so that that's like really, really important in terms of quality and, and uh, reliability. Yes. And reliability. I mean, this is something that we've spoken about on the podcast. We've written a lot about, I'll be sure to add some links about reliability to, to the show notes because there's just so much more to be said, but yeah, that's a good one. You're, you're absolutely correct. In, in our manufacturing uh, and also design team R&D, uh, this is one of the most important things, reliability and quality. So when they choose these parts, they definitely pay attention uh, because we create the reliability test plan ahead of time uh, based on the mm. product requirements. So they sometimes have to actually do some of these tests in uh, a prematurely, let's say, in design team, just to make sure that, you know, it's going to meet that certain temperature requirement. Okay, so moving on to the next one, at number 10, which is cross-reference and alternatives. Wow, I, I'll tell you how many times I have run into a situation like this in my career where somehow the communication between R&D design team and purchasing wasn't clear. And purchasing team completely forgot to, to buy second source parts. When we say alternative components, what we're talking about is that, okay, you've got main components, you know, that is basically the main design and and most of the time, that's what you're going to use. However, you always want to have a second source and or sometimes they call it alternative parts. Sometimes they call it cross-reference, meaning that, you know, it's it's not exactly the same part, but it is better. So it's a little bit more expensive, but at least you have a second source in case something goes mm. with your first source. And many times happens that no one communicated this alternate part with the purchasing so purchasing team don't have a supplier. They know mm. the part, but they haven't done the supplier communication, finding the supplier and doing the due diligence on approving the supplier. So yeah, it can definitely, you know, affect the production timeline and the qualification process. A lot of things can go wrong if uh, the, the alternate parts are not ready to go. Then the next one is a component database. So let's say you have all these 200 parts in your bill of materials. Well, where are you going to put them? So typically, uh, every company uh, and, and every design team, they have a component database. It could be anything. It could be Access. It could be Oracle. It could be online. It could be just an Excel type of uh, component database. Whatever it is, you, you just want to make sure it, it's in a, in a manner and, and, and uh, in a way that uh, you're going to keep your component uh, up to date in terms of data sheet, documentation, version number, and so on, because this is really, really important. You don't want, for example, let's say you have a one bill of material that is using this part. And then on the next revision, you decided, oh, that part is no good. It's too expensive, not widely available. We're going to choose it from another supplier, different part number. Guess what? Somebody didn't update uh, the database. Or when they were going to production, instead of using uh, the updated database uh, bill of material, they went with the 
previous one, things are going to mm. go. I mean, all kinds of uh, problems are going to happen at that point. So it's important to have a database. In fact, in a very, very big project, you need a configuration management system. Configuration management system is where you got documentation control and you got uh, version control for all your documents, including data sheets. And you have a way of eliminating the older versions of the documents for components. And you got a, a component database that has uh, component part numbers that are being issued for approved parts and vendors. And so the, this database and, and having some people who can actually are knowledgeable enough on how to manage this components and databases and and the documentation. So so configuration management is one of the tough jobs to do. And in a big projects like cars, automobile industry, or air air airspace industry, it's like a must. Mm-hmm. Uh, without mm-hmm. it, you can get into all kinds of big problems. So now let's say you've you've done all this so far. The next thing is okay. Well, I'm going to take this part, put it in my circuit, and I'm going to manufacture this this product. Well, one of the important things that you need to do is number 12, design for manufacturing, is which is DFM. But there, there's mm-hmm. a lot of things that you actually need to do. It's not just DFM, but DFM is one of the most important ones because you can't even manufacture a product if you haven't done a DFM. However, uh, as you know, DFX, design for excellence, is one of the, one of the nicest uh, procedures that I have seen in my career uh, that really helps not only de-risk a lot of issues with the product, for example, design for reliability. So if you design it in a way that the product should be more reliable, then when you test them, hopefully you're not going to see major reliability issues, right? But what if you didn't? If you didn't DFR, Mm -hmm. design for reliability, if you didn't do DFR, you'll end up having all kinds of reliability issues after you've spent one, two months, three months, uh, you know, uh, designing the product. Now you've actually manuf- manufactured, you got samples for doing reliability testing. Oh boy, now you got all kinds of reliability issues. So that's why DFX is a great process to follow because it really teaches you how to do design for manufacturability, design for reliability, design for assembly, design for testing and so on, design for quality. And this is one of the most important things let's say, knowledge that pretty much all uh, designers need to know. Now, going into another subject, one of my favorite subjects, and that's number 13, compliance and standards. Oh, boy, this happens all the time where design team are not necessarily knowledgeable about compliance and standards because that's not really their job. Uh, But someone in the company needs to be responsible for compliance and standards. Most often what happens is that uh, maybe the management is not knowledgeable. Maybe it's a startup company and they just don't understand that certain compliance and standards need to be met. For example, you know, if you have a toy, toy safety, right? That's very clear. 
Well, yeah, because we know that for toys, they're going to have quite stringent standards because of safety for children. Yeah, but what if you were were toy manufacturer and you totally forgot about that safety standard and you just, you know, you put in any kind of paint you wanted with lead or, or whatever, and then... And then you find out, oh, you're not meeting the standards. You you can't ship this product. You can't sell this product just because it has lead in the paint. So the compliance and standards are extremely important when it comes to components. So most often what you should do is when you're selecting your part and you have, when you print the data sheet, you must go down and read, is this part meeting the compliance and the standards requirements for that region of the, let's say, the world that I'm going to sell this product in. For example, if you're going to use, if you have a, a product that you're going to sell in U.S., then you check the requirements for compliance requirements for U.S. If you're going to sell it in, in, in Europe, uh, then make sure that it's going to meet European requirements. If you fail to do this, you're looking at a bunch of products uh, basically built and you can't ship it anywhere. Or that, or if you do, they'll get, they could get seized at the border and then you're, well, you're in a world of trouble. Oh, yes. And these, uh, uh, you know, compliance requirements, they keep changing. You know, even if you're knowledgeable, they keep changing every year or every so often. And uh, it's one of those actually tough jobs to keep up because, not only they change, but also every compliance requirement is different from one country to another. And there's so many countries in the world. And and if you make a mistake or you're not compliant to all these countries, then basically, yeah, you can't sell it. Um, and it, it could be devastating. Um, so the next one is simulating and prototyping your product. Well, obviously, if you've come this far, that means you're ready to actually build your product and and actually create samples. And so those samples are called basically prototypes. Usually the first prototype is the toughest one because not only you have to get everything right, you know, your components, your design, uh, but also your requirements and your testing. So if you don't get <laughs> these right, the first prototype will it will take years in some cases. In fact, in some cases it may take literally years because it might be a completely new idea, like an in, inventive idea. Yeah, I mean, if in that case it could take ten years for just for first prototype. Uh, but once you've got the first one out, the next product prototypes, next products in line usually use uses the same basic idea. Uh, maybe even the best, the same basic components, but then the features and the shape, form factors, all of those change. So I would say that that's one of the most important thing, you know, to to keep in mind that you know the first product prototype could take long, so just need to be a little bit patient. The number fifteen is I don't know how much I can emphasize on documentation and record keeping. And honestly, this is one of the most toughest things to do when you're a design engineer, because a lot of times you're just focused on design and you're making so many changes that they keep 
put in the notes here and there on the piece of paper, on your notebook, on a computer. These fragmented information, they can easily get lost. In my one of my companies that I worked before, we had a really good habit building. So every design engineer was given a lab book, you know, like a notebook that they had to number it, you know, lab book one, two, three, and date, you know, every tasks that they do. Actually, there was a bunch of idea, but a bunch of reasons why they were given. One, um, they had assigned a lady who would keep track of these books. And uh, in some cases, important ideas will be taken out out of those books and documented as IP, you know, intellectual property for the com- company. And in some cases, they, they could be patented. So, mm. and then they would confiscate those uh, lab books once they would filled up or they would put it in, in a locked case, very similar to like a library. And they would keep track of in some kind of a database this lab book is about this project from this date to this date uh, was, you know, taken notes by this engineer working on this project. So this way, uh, let's say newbie design engineers for training purpose, they could easily go back and check those design notes and, uh, you know, basically learn from uh, previous mistakes. Yes. I, I can't emphasize how important documentation is. And of course, I mentioned before that you could have, if you have a really, really big project, definitely I recommend document control team as well as uh, configuration management that keeps track of not only all your documents, revision control, but also your part numbers for your components. Really, really important. Yeah, it, it, does that include the lessons learned database? Absolutely, it does. Very good point, actually. Uh, yeah, it because lessons learned database is kind of like a documentation in itself, but it's mm. an important one. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it depends. Okay. You know, every company has their own way of managing the lessons lessons learned. But if you got a big, big project, big company, oh, for sure. Great. So now we're moving into design reviews well by now you 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 selected the part requirements and you found the supplier and uh, you tested the parts and now you built basically your first prototype right now you have to do some kind of testing uh, which you did hopefully with reliability and compliance and now that everything is almost done then you need to have a miles milestone review, which basically is a sort of a design review. That's where every engineer who contribute and contributes to that design need to be in that meeting, plus the management. And then you go through really top down. You know, you you talk about what this product is about, what we targets are, and now let's see what we have done so far. And if the design meets all those requirements, then that milestone is met. And then you move on to the next milestone. And milestones are more like goals, you know, goal one, goal two, first goal, second goal. And the whole idea is trying to make sure that you validate and and uh, basically verify 
with the whole design team that yes, the goals that we had for performance, reliability, quality, testing, all of them are meeting and uh, the product uh, seems to be up until this point, it seems to be behaving uh, as expected. And, and that is really the most important part of the design reviews. And again, these design reviews become more and more difficult as product is towards the completion. And uh, there are a lot more people involved. A lot of, you've got a hardware team, you've got a software team. Uh, I have been in the hardware team re review. It can take like two days sometimes. Uh, and I've been in software team. They'll go through these uh, issue track. And my God, that will take like forever. You know, it's just, yeah, uh, no matter which team you work with, uh, even manufacturing, you you know, you, you're sitting, manufacturing actually team design review, it takes even longer because you have to go through assembly process, you know, all the manufacturing pick and place and the machines that need to be purchased, need to be there, uh, and every little detail in the manufacturing. So it is- It's so complex. Very, very complex. One of the most difficult and the time-consuming design reviews. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be in that design review for sure. <laughs> Anyways, um, moving on to the next one is um, really once you've, let's say you've completed the, the design review. So hopefully everything went through successfully. Then the product is ready to go to manufacturing. So what do you need? You need a bill of material. You need a finalized design bill of material that says to the manufacturing, okay, everything's ready to go. Here's the bomb. Build this product for me. Mm. And uh, It's locked. It's locked. There's no more changes at this point. Yes, exactly. And, and that's exactly right. Bomb locked. And, and once that happens, a lot of uh, manufacturing tasks needs to be taken off. Uh, assembly line needs to be set up. And, and that could take a long time because not only you need to set it up, but also you need to hire their skilled operator, but you also need to write standard operating procedures, SOPs, uh, and procedures for assembly. Uh, it's a very, very lengthy process. Sometimes uh, that whole process of preparing for uh, manufacturing can take maybe you know, two to three weeks, depending on complex, the complexity of the product. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so creating that bill of material itself, in itself is also difficult because you want to make sure that all the parts verify that they are from the same vendors that you have approved. Then, you know, basically the, the purchasing team would be calling every one of these vendors and suppliers and confirming uh, not only the costs, but also availability and the fact that uh want to basically formally notify all these suppliers, that, hey, you know, we're going to be uh, building this this product. Uh, we would like to order these parts from you. When can you deliver? And so making sure that the supply chain and suppliers and the manufacturing all are in sync uh, and the Parts will arrive on a certain date and then manufacturing will start on that date and end on a specific date. And, uh, you know, you got the whole team supporting in terms of design, development, 
testing assembly. It's a big operation that everybody needs to be coordinated, well-coordinated to make sure everything works well. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. <laughs> unfortunately, customers that uh, we have dealt in the past, sometimes some of them have absolutely zero experience with manufacturing or design and development, you know, and, uh, and, and so it can be hard for them to understand that, you know, um, there's a lot involved in, in the whole process. And with our bigger customers, sometimes actually it's a lot easier to deal with because these are big companies. They come to us with 100,000 unit product that they are they have planned to build with us, big projects. And uh, they have an actual design team that understands all these steps that we talked about. But we do really, we take care of everybody. Big or small, we treat everyone equal. And uh, big or small, we only mm-hmm. focus on goals, uh, reliability, quality, making sure that uh, uh, we please our customers at the end. I just wanted to uh, mention the number 18 that I kind of wanted to uh, keep it for the for the last. Uh, and that is, you know, the sample of the components that you order uh, mm-hmm. right from the beginning when you're doing the design all the way to when you're trying to do pre-production. You want to make sure that those samples are tested by you in terms of environmental tests, reliability tests, mm-hmm. quality. And then you also want to get some of those, for example, a reel of those samples and send them to production for pre-production so that uh, they can do a pilot run. And I think we had a, uh, a, an, an episode on pilot run, right? Didn't we? We, we did, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this is how you actually pilot run a component to make sure that um, the actual manufacturing process is not going to experience mm. anything uh, wrong, like soldering issues uh, or anything else, pick and place machine issues, and, and that can happen easily. You know, if if the component packaging, for example, is not the right kind or right design. Yeah. So- even though everything else was working okay through the development. So that's all I got. But next time, maybe we can talk about supplier selection and, and uh, mm. as to these uh, components. Well, yeah, that, that's another that's another topic, but related. So, I mean, this is selecting the electronic components that you need the right way. But yeah, well, how about the suppliers? That will be a, a good one for next time. And I'm sure that you've got, uh, you know, almost an equal number of points that are worth considering for that particular process too but for this one let's call a close to it i think now everyone has got an engineer's insight into how to select electronic components in a way that's going to give you success thanks andrew absolutely thank you we will be back next week as we normally are thanks again for listening to this podcast brought to you by the sophie's group We're on a mission to provide you with everything you need to manufacture effectively in Asia, including inspections, auditing, new product development support, contract manufacturing, 3PL warehousing and fulfillment, and much, much more across Asia's key manufacturing areas. Visit us at sofeast.com, that's S-O-F-E-A-S-T dot com, to learn more and get help. If you've enjoyed the podcast today, please do rate, review and share because it will really help others discover us too. 